Becca just gave me some statistics about, about VBS. Um, apparently, we had over 40 volunteers and over 50 kids show up. So I know I keep saying this, but it, it really is awesome to see a church body come together you know, and, and VBS is always a highlight, but just to see everybody serving together. And we were talking about this the other day, that there is no type of fellowship like serving. I mean, we can eat together, we can hang out together, we can go to Dollywood with students, but there is nothing like getting together and serving. I met so many new people from the church um, just over the past week that it, it really, really was an awesome thing. Uh, one thing, though, is I'm, I am not, I can say this now that they're gone, I am not a kid person. <laughs> I found that out real quick. Um, and it's not, it's not that I don't like kids. Sorry to all you new moms and, you know, but it's not that I don't like kids. It's that I just can't relate to kids. You know, I, I did an experiment um, last week to try to get into the mind of our kids. And I thought to myself, what was I like as an elementary school kid? And to be honest, I kind of drew a blank. I did, you know, I, I don't remember back that far, but I did remember a few things. Okay, the first thing I remember is I remember faking sick to get out of school. Anybody else in that category there? And I'm pretty sure I missed every possible day that I could without having to repeat the next grade. And I did that all the time, especially when report card time, you know, it's time for report cards to come out. The other thing I remember, speaking of report cards, is I was terrible at math. I mean, absolutely horrible. And my dad's here, he can, he can tell you that. But one of the things that um, that you think of when you think of elementary school math is those stinking timetables, right? Do you guys remember the timetables that your teacher would go through them one by one by one, and you'd have to say the ones and go one times one is one, one times two is two, and by the time you got to four, everybody was falling asleep. And so I figured out real quick that it wasn't just me that was bad at math. Our whole class was terrible at math. And I think our teacher, in fear of her job from the end of school testing, um, she decided, like every good school teacher should, um, to bribe us with ice cream, right? And so she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. As we get to the end of grade testing, as we get to the end of grade testing, um, if you get your ones right, then we're going to give you one part of a, a banana split, and so we got one scoop of ice cream. If you got your twos right, you would get two scoops of ice cream. If you got your threes, three. And then you would start building on from there. Your fours, you got a banana. Your fives, you got whipped cream and a cherry. And so on, so on. And so um, we got to the end of school testing. And I was W's. I was Wallace. I was curious to see what I was going to get because I was at the back of the line. And that day I got one scoop of ice cream. Um, but besides that fact, um, one thing I, I kind of realized that was, as I was doing that experiment and going back to my elementary school days is... Nothing really changes as we get from elementary to college, right? The same methods, the same teaching methods that they use, getting you to memorize these things over and over and over until you're having dreams about them, they did the same thing to us in seminary and college. What they did is they would start using the same terms over and over and over, and that same term was gospel, Okay, they kept saying gospel, gospel, gospel. We were in a class typically full of church planners because church planning is like the sexy thing to do for seminaries now is, uh, you know, you want to you go out and plant a church, go reach the, the most unreal people out in California, um, you know, and, and they have their, their skinny jeans on and their, their little, you know, exotic shirts, kind of like what Sid wears and, uh, you know, pearly white teeth. And, you know, we didn't like the church planners, you know, we, they, they sat on their side of the room talking about all the th stuff they were going to do, and half of them didn't even plant churches. Um, 
But they were kind of in their own crowd. And because we were in a class full of church planners, they kept using that term over and over and over. You know, when you go out into the world, when you finally get out and plant churches, make sure they are gospel-centered churches. And I heard that so many times, it made me want to punch a a kitten, you know? Like, gospel, 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 gospel. It it kind of sounded like the teacher from Charlie Brown. You know, like, it's all we heard is is gospel-centered churches, gospel-centered churches. And I remember the the first time I heard that term, gospel-centered. I thought to myself, you know, every church I've been to talks about Jesus. Every one of them. If you're a Christian church, you talk about Jesus. Isn't Jesus and the gospel the same thing? I mean, you can't really separate Jesus and gospel and the gospel from Jesus. They're exactly the same thing. So isn't every single church really a gospel-centered church? Well, I quickly found out that wasn't the case. I mean, all you have to do really is turn on the TV, and you will find people that will use the name of Jesus that aren't preaching the gospel. It's kind of like a recipe, you know, you, you throw in whatever worldview you want, you know, you want to get rich and famous and add a little Jesus in there and it becomes a gospel. I mean, the, the three most popular gospels that I think that we find today are, one is the Mormon gospel, okay? Mormonism is only second to Jehovah's Witnesses in, in America. There are uh, millions of people that confess today to be Mormons. And, you know, I know a lot of people that say, oh, you know, there's really not that much difference. We have your Mormons and you have your Christians, your evangelicals. There's really not that much difference. And that's the farthest from the truth. I had a, a Mormon missionary knock on my door at Christmas and wanted to tell me a, a Christmas story. And, um, you know, I, I, I found out real quick that his Jesus was not the same as my Jesus. You know, see, the, the Mormon gospel says that Jesus wasn't the God. He was a God. And the ultimate purpose of your life, the reason why you're sitting here right now, the reason why God put you on this earth is to achieve what they call celestial exaltation, which is just a fancy word for saying, hey, you can be just like Jesus. You know, Jesus is the the God of this universe, but if you do enough good, if you work hard enough, you can be the God of your universe. So Jesus wasn't a object of worship. He was a status to achieve. The next one I call, you're going to love this, it's what I call the gospel according to Oprah. And um, Oprah's gospel is uh, that all religions are essentially the same. You know, it doesn't matter if you worship Jesus or Allah or if you believe, you know, Muhammad or, or whatever. Every religion's the same, essentially. You know, we're all going to the same place. It's real spiritual. Um, we're all going to the same place. We're all going to the light. You know, it's not really God. It's the light. And, you know, as long as you're true to yourself, then we're all going to end up in heaven one day together. And soon kumbaya, hold hands, all that good stuff, right? The third gospel that I think is most prevalent in our culture today is the prosperity gospel. If you just turn on your TV tonight, on Sunday nights, um, I'm not going to mention any names, but there is a a very prevalent prosperity gospel preacher on TV. He comes on every, every Sunday night, and he is pastor to the largest church in America. 45,000 people attend this church, 45,000, and not to mention the millions that tune in on a weekly basis. Okay, so he's reaching millions of people, and they send out missionaries. They go to Africa. They go to Asia. They go to the the most unreached parts of the world, and they're talking about this stuff. 
And what they're telling them is they're saying, hey, if you... There. Um, if they're saying, hey, if you will believe in Jesus with all of your heart, then he wants to make you wealthy. You know, if you believe in Jesus with all of your heart, then every day can be a Friday. It's one of the books he wrote. His wife is just recently made news by saying this. She says, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. Go figure. Uh, You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen, question mark, and the congregation applauds. See, I came to realize really quick that just because people sprinkle a little Jesus in their gospel, just because people sprinkle a little Jesus in whatever worldview they want, doesn't make it truth. The truth is that people are searching for Jesus, and the thing is, they know Jesus is the right answer. I'm telling you, talk to people. They'll tell you they know who Jesus is. They'll tell you he's the Son of God. They have the right answers, but the question is, what Jesus are they getting? Are they getting the true Jesus? Or are they getting some kind of, some kind of trumped-up Jesus that, that we've created for ourselves? A few years ago, uh, Tim Tebow, a guy named Tim Tebow, some of you may know him, played in the national championship game in 2009. And uh, he was famous as a Christian athlete. He was famous for putting eye paint under his eyes with a, a specific Bible verse. Well, when he played in the national championship, he decided to put the verse John 3.16 under his eyes, the most, you know, widely recognized verse in the world. And so when he did that, just within a few hours, to that point, that was the the most televised event in history. They had 93 million people tune into that one game. And just within those three hours, they had tens of millions of people Google, do a Google search for John 3, 16. You know, people are searching. They are, I promise you. But the question is, what answer are we giving them? So when my professors would just hammer home that point, gospel, 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 I know why now. It's because there's only one really true gospel. And the reason that people are searching, the reason that people haven't found answers to their questions, is because whatever worldview or whatever gospel they've created for themselves isn't working for them. You know, it's funny, if you ask anybody who's been on a mission trip in here, if you ask any long-term or short-term missionary, when they've gone overseas, they'll tell you people overseas are asking the same questions that people in America are asking. You know, it doesn't matter if you live in the southeastern United States. It doesn't matter if you live in the deserts of Africa, the jungles of South America. Everybody is asking the same questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is the purpose of my life? And the reason that they're searching is because their worldview, whatever gospel they've created for themselves, isn't working for them. As we get to our passage in John 3 today, we run into a guy who is exactly in the same shape. His worldview has basically collapsed on him. 
And the reason we know that is because if you read John chapter 3, it tells you that Nicodemus, this man, was a, a Pharisee, but he wasn't just a Pharisee. It says he was a teacher of Israel, not just a teacher of Israel. He was the teacher of Israel. And he's approaching Jesus and asking him questions. Okay, picture the irony in your mind. Picture this scene in your head that a man... Nicodemus, a person who makes his bread and butter, who makes his money off telling people how to get right with God, is going to a carpenter's son asking him for spiritual advice. That could cost him everything. You know, that could cost him his job. That could cost him his, his means of providing for his family. But more than that, in an honor-shame culture, it could have cost him his honor. So no wonder the Bible tells us, no wonder John tells us in chapter 3 that, that Nicodemus went to Jesus by night. Because he, didn't want to, he probably didn't want to be seen by anybody. It could have cost him everything. Because you have a guy who is basically the Michael Jordan of, to Judaism asking a carpenter's son for spiritual advice. You know, imagine a man as prominent as Michael Jordan coming to somebody like me and asking me for basketball advice. Our students can tell you, I'm terrible at basketball. They're all shaking their heads in the back. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, just, just imagine that. Imagine that scene. An expert, somebody who's supposed to know everything about this book. Nicodemus would have had the Torah law memorized. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Imagine, imagine memorizing all that. He had all that memorized, and he wasn't just memorizing it. He was an expert on it. So if you were a good little Jewish boy... Back in, in first century Palestine, doing your quiet time, and you had a question about a verse you were reading, you would go up to Nicodemus and ask him how to interpret it. So he's an expert on the law. Do you see the irony that John's creating here in John chapter 3? A religious leader of Nicodemus is going to a carpenter's son. And I know we have a few carpenters in here, no offense to the carpenters, but it, it's a good job today, but back in, in the first century, it was one of the lowest jobs you could have. And so Nicodemus comes to John, excuse me, Jesus, by night because he's embarrassed. And the other reason that he came by night is John tells us that he's setting up a scene. Okay, have you ever watched a suspenseful movie where um, something, something bad's about to happen and, you know, on cue every single movie, you hear that music start to play? You know, that you know something bad's about to happen. They intentionally do that to get you on the edge of your seat. And, you know, something bad always happens at night, too. In the scary movies, it doesn't happen by day. It always happens by night. And so that's what John's trying to do here. He says, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night because he's letting us know something bad is about to happen. And so Nicodemus comes up to Jesus, and he asks him. It doesn't really say the question, but it's, it's something like, hey, Jesus, how can I be saved? An expert on the Bible is asking a carpenter's son, how can I be saved? Or how do I get to the kingdom of heaven? And look what he says. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, 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 I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, cannot see the kingdom of heaven. If you've been in church culture for more than a week, you will know that term born again. 
And it's not because you know it. It's not because you went to VBS or you grew up in church. It's because you've experienced it. See, born again is not something that you can teach. I can't sit up here and tell you right now how to be born again because you have to experience it. And for those of you who have been born again in here, for those of you who are believers, you know it. You're like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about, Jesus. Makes sense. I've been born again. See, what being born again means is that the the ultimate goal of your life is not now the American dream of getting as much stuff around you as possible, as getting as much instant gratification as possible, you know, getting as much happiness as possible. It's not, your life is not about that anymore. It's not about how much you can get anymore. It's now about how much you can give. How can I give my time? How can I give my service? How can I give my money to further the kingdom of God. See, your happiness being born again takes a back seat to your holiness. Your heart changes, your mind changes, everything about you changes. And so if you're not a believer in here, you know, this, this concept is going to be completely foreign to you just like it was Nicodemus. So Nicodemus, excuse me, Nicodemus um, asked the question, he didn't understand, so he asked a question. And it's probably the most goober question in Scripture. In all of Scripture, this is the craziest question I've ever heard. You know, I kind of picture him asking this question like a West Virginia twang. Um, if you're from West Virginia, just pretend I said Kentucky. Um, so I picture him asking this, this really, really ridiculous question. It's one of the most the awkward questions in Scripture. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, Nicodemus said to him, I'm not going to try the West Virginia thing, by the way. Um, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Benjamin Button style? For those of you who seen the movie, you would laugh at that. It's okay. Um, you know, I, I just picture this old man trying to, to climb back into his mother's womb. You know, I, I imagine Jesus is probably thinking he's talking to one of his disciples who had no education. And they're like, Jesus, what are you talking about being born again? He's like, Peter, is that you? You know, what? who is this guy Nicodemus? Does he have a first grade education? Why is he asking, can I, be, can I climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? But that's really not what he was asking. See, Jesus obviously wasn't talking about you need to be born again physically. He was talking about you need to be born again spiritually. And so when Nicodemus responds to him, he's not asking a physical question. Jesus, how can I climb back into my mother's womb? He's asking a spiritual question. Basically what he's saying is, you know what, Jesus? Just like you can't climb back into your mother's womb and be born again, you don't get a second chance spiritually there are no second chances see nicodemus was on the jewish sanhedrin council and what that means is that he spent his whole life he made his money by judging people right if you violated jewish law back in this time nicodemus was the guy you had to answer to and so he would bring you in his courts they would tell you the violation and he was the one who gave you the sentence of your punishment And so what Nicodemus is saying, you know what, Jesus? You don't get second chances. You make the bed you lie in. You reap what you sow. There is nothing you can do to start over. You don't get do-overs in life. Aren't you glad Nicodemus is wrong? Look what he says to him. In verse 5, he says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one 
is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of people want to say, they look at this verse and they say, you know what, there it is. Jesus is saying you've got to be baptized, you know. There's a, small, there's a small group out there of Christians that say, you know, to be, in order to be truly saved, in order to be, truly be born again, Jesus is saying here you've got to be baptized. You've got you to be immersed in water. Not only do you have to receive the Spirit, but you've got to do a physical demonstration of your conversion. But the problem is that, just like all those other Gospels, that's a workspace Gospel. You know, that's something you do. What Jesus' point here throughout this whole passage, he's not being literal because he's trying to say, hey, there's nothing you can do to earn the grace of God, period. You can't do enough. You can't serve enough. You can't give enough to earn the grace of God. And to say that, you know, you have to be baptized or you have to do something to earn the grace of God, I think that's one of the biggest lies that Christians believe today. You know, I think subconsciously, even though we, we say we understand grace, even though we say, you know, that we, we've been born again solely through the grace of God and, you know, it's not of works, there's nothing we can do to earn it, I think we live the opposite way. Like if we miss your quiet time one day, we come hard down on ourselves because we miss the quiet time. You know, is that not works-based? Or maybe some of you believe that you've gone way too far, that there's no way possible that God could ever forgive you. Maybe you've, you've messed up and you've been divorced once or several times that you knew it was your fault, and you feel like, you know what, God, I've messed up so much. There's no way that your arm of grace can reach out all the way to me and save me. Maybe it's something that you're still struggling with. Maybe it's a constant sin, a constant sinful habit that you can't seem to kick. And because of that, you think, you know what, God, God's one day is going to say, I've had enough. I, I just can't do this anymore. You're done. And so instead of living by grace, we live by works. That's exactly the opposite message that Jesus is trying to tell us this morning. So Nicodemus finally asked the question, how? You know, listen, I'm, I'm a man of the law. I'm a man of the book. I know exactly how you get right with God. You know, I've done it. I've done all the works. I've done everything. I know how it works. You cannot forgive sin without a price. You know, somebody has to pay the consequences for what you've done. There's no startovers. There's no do-overs. And look what Jesus says here the remaining verses. Jesus answers him, Are you not the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? He's being sarcastic. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you're not confused by now, you should be. You know, all of a sudden we're talking about being born again. All of a sudden we're talking about how to get right with God. Jesus and Nicodemus is having a conversation about salvation. And then all of a sudden he mentions Moses and snakes. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? In Numbers 21, there's a, uh, a story 
about the Israelites in the wilderness. And what they were doing is God had just led them out of the slavery in Egypt. And he he had shown them grace. He had delivered them from the ultimate form of persecution. And now they were whining and complaining because their food was bad and because, you know, that they're lost in the wilderness and they don't believe that God can really deliver them anymore, even though he's done it over and over and over. And so they're complaining. And so God says, you know what, I've had enough. He sends serpents, snakes to come and, and bite them. Many of them died and many of them got sick. You can go back and read the story later. And so what God tells Moses, he says, hey, Moses, if you will build a serpent out of bronze and hold it up, and if the people look upon that, then I will forgive their sin. You know, it's almost like a a repentance on behalf of the people. And so that's what he does. Moses takes the bronze serpent, he forms it, and he lifts it up, and all of a sudden the people were healed from their snake wounds. People were healed because of their sin. And so as we get, go back to our passage in John chapter 3, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus, you want to know how this is possible? You want to know how your sins can be forgiven? Look at this. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, to heal them for their sins, so I must be lifted up as a penalty for your sin and my sin. And everybody in here sin. You want to know how it's possible that a holy and righteous God can look upon sinners and say, you are forgiven. It's because of a cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And that's solely the gospel. There is no other gospel. So to say that, you know, if you do enough, if you serve enough, if you give enough, if you, if you work enough, you can maybe earn the favor of God. That's not the gospel. To say that, hey, you know, if you do enough, maybe you can achieve the status of Jesus and be the God of your own universe or whatever. That's not the gospel. To say, hey, God wants you to be healthy and and wealthy and he wants you to give, to get everything that your heart desires. If you just do enough, that's not the gospel. The gospel is solely based upon the grace of God, period. There is no other gospel. There was a man once who uh, was buying a, a vehicle. He's a wealthy man, so he decides to go to a Rolls-Royce dealership. And uh, the salesman, just like any other good car salesman, uh, was trying his best to, to sell him the vehicle. And so he shows them statistics. He says, hey, the Rolls-Royce is the most reliable vehicle on the planet. Look at these statistics. We've had you know, less breakdowns than any car in history. And so the man was impressed. He decides that he was going to purchase the Rolls-Royce. Well, sure enough, a year later, the man's driving to Europe, and his Rolls-Royce breaks down. And so he calls the Rolls-Royce dealership, and he says, hey, you told me this was the most reliable car in history. You told me it would never, ever break down. I've only had this car a year, and it's broken down. So the Rolls-Royce guy says, okay, hang tight. Hang tight. And so he he gets a a specialized Rolls-Royce mechanic on a plane. He flies him out there, fixes his Rolls-Royce. And sends him on his way. Well, a few months go by, and uh, the man's thinking, you know, I should receive my bill by now. Why haven't I got a bill for this? And so he just wants, he's a wealthy man, he can pay his bill. He just wants to get the bill out of the way, so he calls Rolls Royce. He says, hey, 
I had a, I had a Rolls Royce, my Rolls Royce breakdown a few months ago, and uh, you sent a specialized mechanic out here to fix it. I just want to get this past me and pay my bill. And the lady on the phone says, sir, we have no record of this breakdown. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I, you know, they sent him a mechanic. I met him. You know, we talked for a while. I knew exactly. I can give you his name and everything. She says, sir, I don't think you understand. We have absolutely no record of anything ever going wrong with your car. Isn't that amazing that the God of the universe, based on the cross 2,000 years ago, could look at you and look at me and say, I have no record of anything ever going wrong, solely based on the grace of God. Why would God do this? Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish and have eternal life. We can rest in that this morning. Church, in order for us to be effective, In order for us to pour out into others, our cup has to overflow. And our cup cannot overflow until we get this concept down. That we can rest in God's grace. We can rest in it. Because there's nothing we can do to earn it. Solely given by the grace of God on that cross 2,000 years ago. I think one of the best illustrations of this, I'm not going to try to sing it because I have a terrible voice. Um... But it's the lyrics by 10th Avenue North. It's called By Your Side. It goes like this. It says, why are you striving these days? Why are you trying to earn grace? Why are you crying? Let me lift up your face. Just don't turn away. Why are you looking for love? Why are you still searching as if I'm not enough? To where will you go, child? Tell me, where will you run? To where will you run? Because I'll be by your side wherever you fall in the dead of night whenever you call. And please don't fight these hands that are holding you. My hands are holding you. Look at these hands by my side. They swallowed the grave on that night when I drank the world's sin so I could carry you in and give you life. I want to give you life. Let us rest in that gospel today. Let's pray. Father, that is our anthem as a church this morning, is that there is nothing that we can do. We are helpless. Um, we are sheep gone astray. Just nothing but, but dumb sheep that really can't do anything right. That we're helpless. Um, without you, there would be no hope. But God, you loved us enough to send your son, and that is the gospel. So I pray that if, if there are people in here this morning that don't understand the gospel, that they would seek that this morning. And the people that are, are here, the church that has accepted your gospel, I pray they rest in your gospel this morning. That we serve and we give and we do not to earn your favor, but because we have your favor. And that is the true gospel. Let us live in light of that this morning in Jesus' name.